when you go through a time like we're going through now, uh, there is nothing more important than putting your eyes outside of yourself. We're all, we're all dealing with the same you know, frustration and anger and disappointment, all the things that we are going through as a culture. And when we do that, we have a tendency to turn inward. And that tendency to turn inward, we hope to combat that with focusing on the way God is building his kingdom in our midst which is why this series matters so much through the Sermon on the Mount. We were in the Beatitudes last week. We had this Beatitude, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for, say it with me. And we talked about how this idea of righteousness, if you grew up with this translation, this specific translation of the verse, this was uh, really taught to me and maybe you as well. Really, this is just about personal holiness, that you would behave or act or think or meditate in very righteous ways that would be according to your relationship with God being right, keeping it in a right and good place. But then we also talked about how this translation I read recently changed the word completely. And for me, it changed the entire meaning of the verse, although it didn't need to when you look at the original language. God blesses those who hunger and thirst for what? Justice. That's different. For they will be satisfied. Also a little bit different, but this is the big difference. And so we combine these two words for my own translation, which was just a combo of these two. This is really is the heart of this. God blesses those who hunger and thirst for righteousness and justice, for they will be filled and satisfied. So we introduced this last week, but why would we spend so much time on one beatitude? I mean, there's eight of them, and there's some before it, and there's some after it, and some of them we won't even spend a lot of time on, and there'll be other places in the Sermon on the Mount when we'll just kind of move past it, hoping that you're reading and pondering and thinking and reflecting on what it means to be a follower of Jesus, that you are trying to figure out how to match up your heart and your mind, your attitude, your actions with how Jesus says is the way. What does that mean? And we asked you that you would, at the beginning of the series, that you would take a look at these scriptures in the Sermon on the Mount, and you would view them through a kingdom lens. In other words, that the kingdom lens says, you know, we're not just going to take a look at the words at face value. Jesus wants us to have this set of glasses on that views everything that he says, really all of his teachings. But for our purposes, the Sermon on the Mount with the kingdom Mindset. We even told you kind of what that was, that the kingdom of God is, this was week one, here and now. It's Jesus came to announce it. John announced it as well. And it's within us and among us. Jesus said both. It's in us and it's in you. And so when we come together, we do this little weird sort of synergy thing with the kingdom of God. And it's not an earthly kingdom. Jesus said to Pilate, you know, I, I'm not gonna, I don't have a throne, I don't have a castle, I don't have a palace, I, it, my, my kingdom's not of this earth. But really the summary was this one statement, that the kingdom of God is the rule and the reign of Jesus. And this is so important that we grasp kind of what this means. Even if you live with this for a while, or even if you ponder this for a while, it's a concept that just kind of sits with you and you begin to see it in bits and pieces. But it doesn't happen unless you wear these glasses sort of consistently or make some effort to think this way because our minds don't normally think in terms of kings and kingdoms. But in a kingdom with a king, with a, a reign and a rule, there are rules and there's a hierarchy and there's all kinds of things all these things exist and so 
when Jesus said the kingdom of God is among you and it is here, he used that language very specifically. It represents the rule and the reign of Jesus. So with that in mind, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus turns around and he says this incredible statement. So God blesses those who hunger and thirst for righteousness and justice, for they will be filled and satisfied. In other words, Jesus is saying, if you're my follower and you're, you're in the kingdom, this is what you are going to hunger and thirst for. You're going to crave it. I mean, you know what it's like to be hungry. And you know, you crave certain things. You get a little hungry and you think, oh, you know what sounds good to me? You know, so when Don and I go out to eat, you know, I usually I say, you know, what every good husband says, where do you want to go? And she says, I don't know. Where do you want to go? And I said, no, no, really, you pick. She said, no, no, you pick, you pick. And I said, I finally pick. This is what sounds good to me. So I pick a place and she goes, hmm, no, not there. So this happens all the time. So I learned a little workaround. This is for free. Do what you want with it, okay? Here's the workaround. Husbands, and you know, it might be, you know, re reversed. So this might be for the wives. You, this is what I say to Donna now. I've picked a place to eat. She says, where are we going? I said, it's a surprise. <laughs> and she says, it's a surprise. Yeah, yeah, it's a surprise. You're going to love it. She said, where is it? I said, where do you think it is? And then she tells me where she thinks it is. And I say, exactly. <laughs> so that'll save you all kinds of time and mental, emotional effort and energy because you hunger for certain things. Sometimes you want a little pasta. Sometimes you want some meat. Sometimes you want some tasty pizza. You want all of these things. You hunger and thirst for them. And Jesus says, the people in my kingdom, they hunger and thirst for righteousness and justice. It's their diet. It's what they want. And if you're going to be in the kingdom, and if you're going to operate under the rule and the reign of Jesus, then you have to develop and cultivate a taste for and a hunger for righteousness and justice. But these two words, righteousness and justice, they make up one word in the Greek original language. It's what Jesus would have spoke. It's what was recorded in our original manuscripts and this one word is is a very important word and so i'm going to teach you that word today this is the the greek this is the english transliteration and it means righteousness and justice and this is how you say this decay say decay ah soon nay that's good is that close tom this is the kind of people that we have in our church. After church last Sunday, um, before I even got to this part, this was this week. Last week, I was back here and was talking about righteousness and justice. And right after church, Tom Edwards, gentleman in our church, who volunteers down at the collective and does lots of things, came up to me and handed me this little piece of paper. And on it, that he wrote, uh, just a little piece of scrap, the man knows how to write Greek, so he, he wrote this word out with his pencil and gave me his definition, which is pretty close to my definition, so that tells me I'm on the right track uh, for the meaning of this word. Dekeasune. Say it with me one more time. You ready? Dekeasune. And it means righteousness and justice. 
the two words mean that I'm living in a right relationship with God and a right relationship with each other. It is based on an ethical and moral standard. It's not even really yet a legal or judicial word, but it does also mean justice. But righteousness and justice together mean that I'm in a right relationship with God based on how I live and the ethics that I choose to operate with and the morals that I choose to live by. But then there's also this justice component. And this justice component connected to the same Greek word means that I pursue fairness on behalf of all people. And that fairness is represented first by my relationship with God. He is fair and just with me. And then I translate that fairness and justice or just relationships with other people. And I pursue them on behalf of others. Equity and fairness. I cannot overestimate. I cannot overestimate how difficult this concept is for us in our culture. Because when you were raised and something happened between you and your siblings and you said to your parents, what did you say? That's not fair. Your parents said to you, life's not fair. So we have this perception, this deeply held cultural belief that life itself is not fair and that that simply is the way life is. And when Jesus steps onto the stage and begins to say, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for these things, we don't even know what to do with that because we have resigned ourselves to believe that life simply isn't fair. And Jesus came to say, in my kingdom, under my rule and under my reign, there will be righteousness, right relationships that are based on equity and fairness with me, vertical, and with each other, horizontal. And that that characterizes life in the kingdom that is here and now and that represents God's rule and reign. I can't tell you how unusual this is and how unique it is. And when you begin to have kingdom glasses and you begin to read scripture, you see it everywhere, everywhere, because it's not new. In fact, from the very beginning, Jesus called a specific man to initiate a covenant with him and build a family. And what was his name? Anybody remember his name? Abraham, that's right. And God had a vision for Abraham and his family and what would eventually become all of Israel. And God makes it very plain and clear in Genesis. He says this, for I have chosen him, Abraham, so that he may command his children and his household and what would eventually become all of Israel, the entire nation of Israel, to keep the way of the Lord by doing, verb, right? By acting out, by doing two things. What are they? Say it with me. Righteousness and justice. This was God's design from the very beginning. And it goes further back. The, 
the reason why God wants this to happen through Abraham and the reason why this was important to God is because, well, when you read in Genesis 1, God created all of creation. He says, very good, it's beautiful. And he says many things about creation. And then he breathes his, his life, his breath into mankind, all of humankind, his ruah, he breathes it into them, creates man and woman in his image. And the uniqueness of his image brings about what he would call the crown of his creation or dignity given to a different part of his creation, every man and every woman. Well, the first several chapters of Genesis see that decimated and destroyed, and God begins again, and as he does, that plan involves Abraham and his family, restoring righteousness and justice. Now, this, of course, is a little bit different because the Old Testament was written in Hebrew, and our New Testament, the word you just learned, was written in Greek, of course. And so you're going to get a few layers here, and you may get a little bit lost, but I bet you will grab a couple of concepts that you'll hang on to. So let's go back to our key word, right? This word, this Greek understanding of righteousness and justice. Well, when I go to the Old Testament and I read these two words, I learn two new words. They're Hebrew words. But they're separate. Not one word in the Greek, but two in the Hebrew. Sedeca, say it with me. Sedeca. Try it one more time. Sedeca. Oh, you're learning so much today. It's amazing. And then another word, mishpat. Say that with me. Mishpat. Very good. These are the Hebrew or Jewish understandings of righteousness and justice. And they mean pretty different things. Sedeca is righteousness or right relationships between people based on an ethical or moral standard. That's what it means. So it's, it's not just right and wrong judicially or in the context of laws broken and laws not broken, but it's how you and I relate to one another. In other words, I'll tell you the truth and you tell me the truth. We live in Seneca. We live according to an ethical standard that you and I can operate on. It's how your best relationships find good harmony, truth, and connection and communion. It's when you work with a coworker and you find out they don't really operate according to any sort of Seneca standard, and then you think, you know, I, you can't talk to Bob, you don't know if he's telling you the truth or not. This is the word about Bob in the break room. And everybody says, well, we don't trust him. We don't have righteousness together. This is the idea of Seneca. But then there is another idea centered around justice, and it's a little more involved. That idea is represented by the Hebrew word mishpat, and mishpat represents two kinds of justice. One is, is legal justice or retributive justice. That's justice that if I steal something of yours, I have to pay it back and maybe even pay a penalty for it or maybe even serve some time because I broke a law of a certain nature or caliber. That is judicial justice, and that's part of it. So when you open up the Old Testament, you'll see laws after laws after laws that are written around mishpat, judicial justice. But there's a deeper, more meaningful understanding of mishpat that represents the vast majority of this word, mishpat, in the Old Testament. And it has to do with what we would call 
restorative justice. Restorative justice means that we are taking care for people who have been forgotten, left alone, ignored, or unjustly treated by a system or government or even social circle for one reason or another, and we are correcting that system, paying attention to the individual and bringing them up to our level. Restorative justice means that we are paying attention to those that would normally be forgotten, trampled, or taken advantage of. It is our refugee ministry. Can you imagine this family just crossing a border near Afghanistan, what they might receive? Can you imagine Saeed and the kids trying to find their way now when it becomes known that he was helping remove people from the country, what the Taliban would do? As he said, I need to change the clothes. If they know who I work for, I will fear for my life. Why? Because he was helping others. So now they find themselves in a new place in Denver, Colorado, and what happens then? Kids get separated? No, that wouldn't be, that wouldn't be good, would it? They not find their way? They live on the street. Maybe a few nights in Denver Rescue Mission, but then what? Lutheran Family Services, as a part of the kingdom of God, has come alongside them to say, we can help. We can help. What do we have to do to earn it? Nothing. Nothing. You're here. We got you. Here's an apartment. Some family in some church down south found a bed for you. This is where you'll sleep now. This is where you will make sleep happen, right here. We will take care of you. This is mishpat. It is restorative justice. Why? Well, what has happened to Saeed and his family isn't just. It is not just. It is an injustice that occurred to them. Based on what? Well, we mentioned that you should be looking for injustice last week, and we told you to look a couple places. One is structures and hierarchy, power, and money. Watch those two places, and you'll find injustice. Well, where's the structure and hierarchy right now in Afghanistan? Who's in charge? Well, the Taliban. Are they concerned about justice? No, they're concerned about maintaining power and subjugation of certain uh, people groups, genders, and so on and so forth. You'll find injustice rampant in a place like that. Do you have to go to Afghanistan to find injustice? Do you have to go to Afghanistan to find injustice? No. Is it here? Yes, it's everywhere. So when you begin looking, you begin to see it. And Jesus says, those of you who hunger and thirst for Sedeca and Mishpat, well, that is where you'll find the kingdom of God. So Mishpat... It's like a coin with two sides. One is legal justice, and that's good, should be pursued. But restorative justice is very different. Restorative justice is, in fact, the heart of God, and it's all through the entire Old Testament over and over and over again. So like I said, remember, if you begin to lead and look and serve and love and then look at Scripture with kingdom eyes, you'll see it over and over and over again. So there's a person, type of person in the Old Testament that God calls up with a message 
and sends them out to preach to his people to convict them of sin and those kinds of things. We call those people prophets. In the Old Testament, there's a bunch of them. Major and minor, we learned in Bible classes. So you've got Jeremiah and you've got Isaiah. You can name a few for me. What were some of the prophets that you know of, their names? Yeah, there you go. That's right. Over and over, you'll see them. God raises them up. Almost without exception, every time God raises up a prophet in the Old Testament, it's because of restorative justice or mishpat. This idea of mishpat is the reason why God raises up a prophet. So God raises up the prophet Amos. You can read the story. It's short. It's because there's a king in the northern kingdom, Jeroboam II, who had power, and he used his power, his hierarchy structure, to oppress the poor and line his pockets with money. And so God raised up Amos. Story's more involved, lots of details. But you might remember that the book of Amos says, let righteousness flow like a mountain stream. And so Amos, he prophesies this. Same thing with Micah. God raises up this prophet named Micah. Happens over and over again in the Old Testament. Happened with Amos and it happened with Micah as well. Because there were leaders who began to take certain privileges for themselves that they wouldn't give to the people who didn't have the power to do so. And not only that, when Micah came to prophesy, there were prophets that operated in the culture, but these prophets were paid for their messages. Do you know what happens when you pay a prophet for his message? You get the message you want. It's like you're paying attention. This is good. And so Micah rises up and he gives the message that they don't want to hear, that your prophets are wicked, your kings are wicked. And he begins to lay out a vision for the kingdom of God that is filled with sedeca and mishpat, with righteousness and justice. And you remember what he said near the end of the book? This is one of the most famous verses in, in the prophets. What does your God require? Say it with me. To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. That is mishpat, restorative justice. And it is all through scripture. It's all through God's story, and it's all throughout history. In fact, when you get to the teachings of Jesus and you read the Sermon on the Mount with this in mind and all of his teachings, you watch how Jesus interacts, then you see righteousness and justice on every page over and over and over again. Do you remember when Jesus cleared the temple and he said, this shall be a house of what? Prayer, that's right. And so the, the idea that Jesus went in and cleared the temple, it was a moment of you know, this idea, this, this suffering servant, this meek and gentle Jesus made a whip and ran some people out. It's incredible, incredible moment. The reason Jesus cleared the temple is because those who were in charge of selling the items that were needed for sacrifices took advantages of foreigners who brought in their own currency and had to then exchange to local currency and then make a purchase with that money. They stole from them and made the exchange rates incredibly inequitable so they could line their pockets with the profits. There was incredible financial inequity involved in worshiping God. And Jesus said, this shall not be. And he drove them out. And he cleansed it. That is mishpat. 
restorative justice. In just a chapter or so, we're in chapter 5. The very next chapter, Jesus will talk about divorce. No, I'm sorry, it's it's right in chapter 5. It's just coming up right after the Beatitudes. And when Jesus talks about divorce, he, he condemns divorce very plainly and very clearly. In fact, there are many people who have gone through a divorce and they read the words of Jesus and have just this incredible sense of guilt and shame over their past. Jesus didn't condemn divorce in the Sermon on the Mount to uphold the value of marriage. Listen close. Jesus didn't condemn divorce to uphold the value of marriage or marriage as we understand it. When you go read this passage in Matthew 5, he says, you shall not give a certificate of divorce, and he makes it very plain, to the men, a man shall not divorce a woman. In first century Jewish culture, a woman could not petition for divorce. A woman could not give a certificate of divorce. A woman could not become legally divorced from a man at her own initiative, request, or action. It was limited to men. And so Jesus says to the men, you will not create an inequality and leave your family destitute. Jesus, even in the Sermon on the Mount, in first century Jewish culture, began to dissemble patriarchy and the power that men have that women don't have. It was about financial inequality. And so Jesus says, you can't do it. You will make the woman a victim. Go back and read it again. That's mishpat. That is restorative justice. You remember the story of the Good Samaritan? There was a man fell into the hands of robbers, left for dead on the side of the road. He's left for dead on the side of the road, and oh, a religious man walks by and ignores him. Another religious man walks by and ignores him. And along comes the Good Samaritan, who would have been in that day and time, first century Jewish culture, the equivalent of the underserved race the race that we ignore, the half-breed that we decide isn't worth as much as us. So even when Jesus is trying to explain the importance and the clarity of the greatest commandment, he takes a teachable moment and holds up racial inequality and then destroys it by making the hero of the story somebody who would have been despised because of their race. This is mishpat. It is restorative justice. And so we asked you to look last week. We said, look, where do you see injustice? Now, I guarantee you, if you prayed about this, if you said, Lord, I don't know what's going on with me this week. I got a thousand things to do and a thousand places to go. But will you just help me to see injustice in our world, our culture, and our community? And then we asked you to have some conversations about it. Now, you're not behind. You can do that again this week. And if you do, then maybe you'll do so with an understanding of the entire teachings of Scripture and the heart of God for justice and righteousness and even maybe a better understanding of what that means and why we would want this or why it matters. There are systems all around us that need to be understood and dismantled 
Because those systems are systems of injustice. Mishpat, restorative justice. It's how God works. I have a buddy, he, he's, a, he's an RN. And if you think about hierarchies, then you know how the hierarchies work in a hospital, right? You've got some administrators, and you've got some doctors, and then you've got some nurses, and you have some other people. Then near the bottom of that hierarchy are people who are CNAs mostly, certified nursing assist- assistants. Uh, they do the dirty work, the nasty stuff, the heavy lifting. When a nurse sees something that they don't want done, they go get a CNA and tell them to do it. And they kind of have to do it. It's their job. And so my friend, he began to pay attention, had conversations and good relationships with all the CNAs that work on his floor. And you know how HR thinks nobody talks about what they're paid, right? They say, you know, you shouldn't share how much you're paid with other coworkers. You guys do that, right? No, no, everybody knows what everybody else is paid. And he found out that the CNAs, well, you could make more if you went to work for McDonald's. Now, my friend, who's an RN, he, he has some great relationships with the doctors and the administration and the CNAs all across the board. He has some social capital. So when it came time for reviews and when it came time for feedback in terms of job performance and 360 stuff for leadership and administration, he decided to spend his social capital on behalf of the CNAs. Didn't ask for a raise for himself, although he got one. But he said, look, I know that you think people don't want to work. They're not paid enough. I know you think people are lazy and want to take unemployment. But these people could go sling chicken for more money. This is hard work. We should pay them what it's worth. And he spent all of his, emptied his pockets of the capital that he had on behalf of the CNAs who after review time, each one of them received a cost of living raise that was double that of anyone else. That is restorative justice. It's mishpat. Back in 2010, the Lassards had been here at Castle Oaks for about five months. Paul and Rebecca were with us in this service, and after the sermon last week, Paul said, I bet there's some things about... Um, the story I'm going to share with you that you don't know. And he was right. There was much I didn't know. Paul was a part of a Thursday group that I'm a part of now. It's a group of pastors that come and pray. And there was a one week in May where he went to the pastors group to pray. Local pastors here in Castle Rock gather every Thursday. And that particular day, there was a gentleman from Young Life that was there. And this gentleman said, hey, just so you guys know, um, there are some special needs adults that are about to age out of our student program. And the parents are pretty concerned. They want something for them. We can't do it. Our, our plate's full. But that's, they want somebody to meet their needs and have a church to partner with. But we can't do anything about it at all. And Paul is sitting there. Paul's just praying. He's thinking. You see, that Sunday, Paul was about to preach on Matthew 25, where Jesus tells a story about people who are you know, poor or maybe imprisoned or maybe don't have enough clothes. And Jesus says, if you help them, you have helped the least of these. Paul's thinking, I got a great sermon for Sunday. And he's sitting in this pastor meeting and God's saying, is it just a sermon, Paul? Is it just a sermon? Is this something to be, is it, what are you doing? What, what's happening? So he follows this guy out to the parking lot and says, hey, I think Castle Oaks is supposed to do something about this. 
He said, well, I, I, yeah, let me put you in contact with one of the parents. And he wrote down the name of Mary Lou Fenton. Emily was aging out of her young life group, was going to have no place to go. So Paul called Mary Lou as soon as he got back to the church office and that day had a couple-hour meeting with Mary Lou, which is no surprise. You really can't have a meeting with Mary Lou without being a couple hours. And so, because she's passionate about what she does, that Sunday, Paul preached about the least of these. Jesus' phrase to get us to pay attention to people who don't have what we have or maybe don't have the social standing that we have. And he asked for volunteers, for people that wanted to help meet this need. And among those volunteers were, that first year, Ray Freeman, Paula's husband who has passed, Kim Thompson, you know Hannes who plays, a lot of you know Kim, Marianne Havercate. Then that fall, they started Club 21. We were at the, some of us were at the Wellspring Night of Inspiration on Friday night. And we saw story after story after story of people whose lives were being changed by the ministry that has now blossomed and grown exponentially from those early days at Wellspring. Every day I'm at this church, I pass adults who have incredible talents and abilities. They are, I don't think disabled, they are uniquely enabled to teach us about the kingdom of God. This is what mishpat is. And so, look, if, if you were gonna ask this question, if you were gonna address this in your own heart and in your own mind, if you were gonna do your best to live this out, pursue righteousness and justice, then God immediately turns his attention to you and says, are you looking? Are you listening? Let me show you something. And you'll see it right in front of you. And you don't have to start a nonprofit to do it. You can do that by having a conversation with somebody who doesn't feel seen. You can do it by donating. You can do it by loving, by sending a text. You can do it a thousand different ways. Look, there's a theology in churches that has taken deep root in churches that gets even more attention when things get tough, when things get hard. It's, uh, I call it this world is not my home theology. Are you familiar? You know, we just pine for heaven and the glory of heaven. And there couldn't be anything more harmful than a bunch of Christians just pining for heaven. Because God has said, May your kingdom come, may your will be done. What? On earth as it is in heaven. We don't get another one. This is the one. God is making all things new and he's renewing it. But only for uh, those who have a hunger and a thirst for righteousness and justice. So I'm gonna pray, I'm gonna lead you through this. Josh and the team's gonna lead us through one more song. And uh, my hope is that your heart will be drawn to these things and that God will move you to do righteousness and justice. I want you to bow your heads with me. Lord, we ask right now that you would do your work in us. We believe that the world is in desperate need of your kingdom, one person, one conversation at a time. Lord, we desperately want to be a part of that. We want to see you at work. And so we ask that you would give us eyes to see, kingdom glasses to see what is needed that you would transform us, 
one at a time, inside out, that we would hunger and thirst. So, Lord, change our appetites. Change our appetites. Change what we want. Change what we pursue. Help us to see with your eyes.